0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you have joined us. Two years ago, Family Research Council rolled out the Stand on the Word Bible reading plan to encourage people to read through the scriptures. Now, some of you might wonder, what's a public policy organization in Washington, D.C. doing promoting the Bible? Well, first and foremost, we are a Christian organization. And I believe that all we do, whether it be in our public policy work, our careers, or family or entertainment, starts with the firm foundation of Scripture. After all, whatever we do, and we are going to do it to the glory of God. And how do we do that unless we know what God has to say about these issues? So I encourage you to join us. Sign up now to, and join us in January for our Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan. For details, visit frc.org Bible. You can join everyone here at FRC in our Bible reading journey, frc.org Bible. Hope that you will do so. And now for our news today, inflation. Is at the highest levels in 40 years? Did the Biden administration really cause it? And is there anything that can be done to stop it? We'll talk about that with Wisconsin Representative Brian Stile. In addition, the United States is staging a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics in China, and the international community has officially stated that the Chinese government's actions against Uyghur Muslims is a genocide. Is this going to have any impact on China? At the end of the program, the third installment of George Barna's 2021 Millennial Survey has been released. Millennials seem to have a favorable view of Jesus, but not the church. What's it all mean? We'll discuss it with the creator of the survey, George Barna. But now... For the headlines, breaking news today from the Supreme Court on an important abortion case. No, it's not that abortion case. We'll likely be waiting until June before the Supreme Court issues a decision in Dobbs, which could overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision involves the Texas heartbeat bill. The Supreme Court made a surprise announcement yesterday that they would be releasing a decision today, and they did. Help us to understand, help here to help us understand the decision and what it means for abortion in Texas and America is my colleague, FRC's research fellow for legal and policy studies, Catherine Beck Johnson. Catherine, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Joseph. It's great to be back on with you.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. There's some good news here in that there's a lot of activity for pro-lifers to be keeping track of. The bad news is it's easy to be confused by all of us. If you could start off by reminding us what the Texas heartbeat bill was and why why it was at the Supreme
2: Court.
1: That's exactly right. It can be certainly confusing. It's a nuanced opinion, a nuanced case. So Texas passed a heartbeat ban, banning abortion after a heartbeat can be detected, which is around six weeks. Because this would be unconstitutional under Roe and Casey precedent for the state to enforce that law, the authors of the bill were very creative and came up with a mechanism where the state was actually not permitted to enforce the law. Instead, it would be private individuals enforcing this law so for instance if i was a if i was a, if i was aware that an abortionist was committing an abortion past six weeks of pregnancy I could sue that abortionist for $10,000. Now, because this is enforced by private individuals, there really was nobody for the abortionist to sue to stop this law from going into effect. So it's more of a procedural way around Roe and Casey. It was a brilliant and so far pretty successful attempt to save lives in Texas. And that's what this law is, which is separate from the Dobbs case that you just mentioned, which has the potential to undo Roe and Casey and actually have states go in and enforce abortion bans.
0: Now, we know that the Supreme Court had previously declined to jump in and stop the Texas heartbeat bill from going into effect. I know there's a lot of procedural kind of legalese in this particular decision. Bottom line it for us, if you could, are abortions legal now in Texas or not?
1: The bottom line is this law is still in effect. So as of now, lives are still being saved. I believe there's already been over 15,000 lives saved in Texas. So, yep, as of now, the Texas heartbeat ban is still in effect, which is a huge win for us.
0: That is tremendous news, and we continue to... Just be thankful that the changes in the Supreme Court over the last several years, first when they jumped in and refused to uh, intervene to stop the Texas heartbeat bill from going into effect, and now on really a procedural, there's a a lot of nuance here, um, but they have again um, followed the law and said the law, this is going to stay in effect. Litigation will continue, but the fact that the Supreme Court is not taking every opportunity to support and defend abortion is itself a step in the right direction, isn't it?
1: It is. And I really think it's going to be difficult in the Dobbs opinion, which will hopefully undo Rowan Casey, overturn them, say that abortion is not a constitutional right. I think that this is promising for that case, because it'll be hard for the court to come down with this opinion, as they did today, saying that's fine, that abortion is essentially banned in Texas. And then in a few months saying that abortion is an incredibly important constitutional right that's just bedrock in our jurisprudence as a nation. So I think that this is really promising that the Supreme Court recognizes that abortion is no longer this super right, as Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas have talked about that for so long, for for 50 years almost, has really gotten special treatment in the courts and in our jurisprudence. So like you said, it's really encouraging now that we have justices that see there are other rights at stake and other interests in our legal system.
0: And we're talking to Catherine Beck Johnson. Catherine, this case, the the case that the Supreme Court just uh, released the decision on this morning, uh, was really the abortion industry's attempt to throw the kitchen sink, proverbially, at this heartbeat law and make it stop. It was unique, and you've you've mentioned that. But my understanding is this doesn't necessarily stop the litigation against the the heartbeat bill. It will remain in court. Is that right?
1: That's right. There were a lot of different split opinions in this opinion that came out today. Justice Roberts would—I'm sorry, Justice Thomas would have stopped this case immediately and would not have had it permitted to move forward at all. There were eight justices, however. Every other justice agreed that this suit could go forward against licensing officials in this state. And then the liberal justices, along with Justice Roberts, who has started voting lockstep with the liberals, would have permitted the state judge, the state clerks to also be enjoined from this. So really what that means is only state licensing officials are the ones permitted to be sued by abortion providers all of the justices agreed that pri- the private individual named was not permitted to move forward and really this is a win for pro lifers because first and foremost it was it's pretty clear that the texas Lawmakers could rewrite this simply to remove any authority of licensing officials to have over SB8, the heartbeat ban. And secondly, the court has said that they will defer to state officials to interpret their own state's laws. So Texas could come up and say, look, we don't think that these licensing officials actually have the authority to enforce SB8 or to be involved in this at all, in which case that would remove the suits going forward of the licensing officials, which the Supreme Court held today is the only officials of the state that, I'm sorry, that the suit can move forward. So it's definitely something that will be interesting to follow. It's not the end of litigation in this case, but it still was a huge victory for pro-lifers.
0: Now, you mentioned all of the defendants in this case, court clerks, licensing officials, even judges who were named as defendants. We don't typically see judges as defendants in cases. Why is it that court clerks and, and judges ended up being a named defendants in this suit?
1: The pro-aborts wanted to stop these cases from going to court. So they wanted to say you can't A private individual can't bring this $10,000 suit in court. Therefore, state judges and clerks cannot hear any case pertaining to this topic. And that really would have been an incredibly aggressive move. That would have been unheard of, unprecedented for the Supreme Court to prevent state judges from hearing any case pertaining to what this law permitted, which was which happened to be an abortion case. But it really would have been unprecedented for the Supreme Court to come in and stop state judges from hearing a case that pertained to any issue.
0: So it isn't really a radical step of a conservative court to defend uh, uh, the pro-life position. It really is just a defense of the justice system as we as, al- as we have been operating for a long time. Is that true?
1: That's exactly right. Because the case deals with abortion, the left is painting this as just radical hacks on the Supreme Court. But really what we have are justices who are smart, who have deliberated and who recognize that abortion is done getting a pass in our court system. And that just makes the left very upset because abortion is their most cherished right that should get any pass that they deem worthy, which happens to be every pass.
0: And to that point, if we are now um, doing a better job of evaluating these cases as, these cases on the merits rather than uh, with consideration to the underlying political issue, what do you think the future is for the Texas heartbeat bill?
1: I think that it definitely depends what happens in Dobbs. You know, what is best case scenario is that in Dobbs, Roe and Casey are overturned and states have the authority to go in and out law abortion starting at conception and with that the state would have the criminal the authority to press criminal charges to the abortionists to those who help you know i don't think any state plans to criminalize women at all This would very much be targeted towards the abortionist. And that is stronger than relying on individuals to have a $10,000 fine. And so what happened in Texas was very much a result of being bound by Roe and Casey, and it was a brilliant workaround. But best case scenario is that Dobbs overturns Roe and Casey, and the state has the authority to ban abortion at conception.
0: I've heard some concerns about the Texas Heartbeat Bill and the idea that the same mechanism of allowing individuals to sue to enforce a law could be used um, by the left to, for example, uh, sue people for violation of or for, for gun rights violations or things like that. Do you think that there's any concern about this mechanism used in the Texas Heartbeat Bill being used by the left on issues that the right might care about?
1: I don't. Because first, we need to be aware that the left already is going after the right's rights. And I think that this is very clear, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop and other instances, the left has written laws that infringe on our religious liberty and everything else. So the left certainly does not feel bound to play by any neutral standards. And I also think that there is very much a difference between a written First Amendment right, such as to free speech, and a court made right of the so called right to an abortion. The courts might view them similarly, but they also might not when it comes to this mechanism. So we'll have to stay tuned to see what happens if the left does go after a fundamental written First Amendment right or Second Amendment right.
0: So, Catherine, I think it's the last question. Your general sentiment about how this is all going to shake out. We got Dobbs. We got the heartbeat uh, litigation. What's the timeline? What's the end result of all this going to be?
1: I think it's incredibly hopeful for the pro-life movement. We've picked up steam. We have good justices. And like I said earlier, 15,000 lives have been saved in Texas, and we look forward to that number only increasing across the nation.
0: Well, we are encouraged by your optimism. We share it and we will be in prayer. Katherine Beck Johnson, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And stay with us. We are going to change the subject. The other breaking news of the day, inflation. Congressman Brian Stile from Wisconsin will join us to talk about who's at fault, anyone, and what should we be doing about it. That's coming up next here on Washington Watch. Stay with us.
4: to 67742.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Reminder that you can find this and every program at TonyPerkins.com. This morning's Washington Post headline screamed what we all know and have been seeing in our bank accounts. Prices climbed 6.8% in November compared with last year, the largest rise in nearly four decades as inflation spreads through the economy, the headline read. And that headline is describing the finding of today's report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which showed that prices rose a whopping 6.8% in the last month, the largest 12-month increase since June 1982, 39 years ago. Now, President Biden had had anticipated this issue of inflation, and he talked about it as far back as June. Here's what he had to say then.
5: And by the way, talk of inflation, the overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. No one's talking about this
6: great, great deal. You know.
5: So, again, if it turns out that what I've done so far, what we've done so far, Is a mistake. It's going to show. It's going to show. Here to
0: break down what that means is the ranking member of the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth, Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin. Congressman, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me on. Well, you saw President Biden's comments there from June. Is this something that just popping up and will pop back down or was it was it a mistake?
2: Oh, clearly not. I mean, the Biden administration has been pouring gasoline on this fire, and it's been getting worse, and it's clobbering people in their pocketbooks. The inflation numbers we saw today only confirms what everyone knows. When you go to the gas pump, it costs more. When you go to the grocery store, it costs more. If you're out Christmas shopping, it costs more. And it's clobbering American families who are struggling to get by. We need a change of course in policy in Washington, D.C. We need to kill the Build Back Better plan before it bankrupts Americans.
0: Do you think the inflation that we have seen in the last 12 months is a permanent fixture of our daily lives moving forward now?
2: Well, this is the real concern. If we don't have a a change, of course, in policy, we're going to continue to see rising prices. What we need to do is get our spending under control here in Washington, D.C. And inflation is clobbering American families, and in particular, low-income families and seniors on fixed incomes. And so while the Democrats claim to be trying to work for those individuals, what they're really doing is taxing those individuals through higher costs.
0: Congressman Style, how is it, in your opinion, that policy is leading to this result?
2: Well, we're getting a double whammy of both fiscal and monetary policy being in the wrong direction. One, we have the Federal Reserve pumping trillions of dollars into the economy at the same time that we have seen spending explode on the fiscal side here in Washington, D.C. And so not only do we have trillions flowing into the economy through the Federal Reserve bulking up its balance sheet, we also have a series of, quote, COVID bills that don't have a whole lot to do with COVID, but have a lot to do with pumping money into the economy uh, at a way that's overheating our, our situation and driving costs up.
0: Do you think that the inflation we're experiencing now is an inevitable result of just doing what we needed to do to recover from the coronavirus? Or is it more something that could have been avoidable and we still could have pulled ourselves out of that hole?
2: We should have never gone down the path that we have this year. Out of the gates there, so you can have a real conversation when governments were closing businesses around the country. But as we got into 2021 and the Democrats passed on a partisan basis a reconciliation bill for $1.9 trillion, that really sent us on this runaway course. And the Democrats now pass another trillion plus for infrastructure, although we know that that means green charging stations and aspects of the Green New Deal. It didn't have a lot to do with roads and bridges. And now they're fighting to try to pass a BBB plan that's going to spend trillions more. What we need to do is rip the Band-Aid off of COVID, get our lives back and get prices under control.
0: Now, you mentioned the Build Back Better plan that President Biden is continuing uh, to prioritize. These new numbers, do you think they will have any impact on Congress's uh, reception to the Build Back Better plan?
2: Well, this is what Congress's goal is and what my goal is, is to inform the American people what is in Build Back Better so that we can actually kill it in the Senate. Most people don't fully understand what's in the bill. And when they actually look at the underlying policies, they don't want them. On the surface, it sounds maybe good to say that we're going to provide child care for free to everyone. When you actually rip off the cover of this book and you start looking inside, what it really means is higher costs for child care for average American working families. It moves us in the wrong direction. And the more we inform the American people through programs like yours, the better off we're going to be of being able to actually kill this bill in the United States Senate.
0: We're talking to Congressman Brian Style from Wisconsin. Now, you uh, you mentioned the fact that increase just pumping money into the economy, is uh, is what one of the things that's leading to inflation is the fact that we have we already are experiencing shortages in goods, uh, contributing to that.
2: That's a factor that we've run up demand on goods rather than services. But another massive factor is our worker shortage, which is being exacerbated by democratic policies. The democratic policies being put forward are discouraging workers from returning to the workforce. The labor shortage in and of itself is a huge factor in the inflation and the higher prices that Americans are seeing every day.
0: So it seems that uh, on one hand we are discouraging the supply of goods and on the other hand we're pumping more money into the economy to chase to chase excuse me the shortage of goods that we have which inevitably this is economics 101 stuff will lead to an increase in the price of goods now congressman style 2022, it's always election season. Effectively, how is this landing with the American public? What impact do you think it's going to have in 2022 on the congressional midterms?
2: When I'm out speaking to people in Janesville, Racine or Kenosha, they want to get their lives back to normal. They want to stop seeing the higher costs for goods that they're seeing every day. Republicans have the policies that actually address that. Allow us to get our way of life back, get costs under control and get on with the American way.
0: Congressman Style, we appreciate your time very much, your vigilance on this issue. It is needed now as much as ever. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And one thing we should point out on all of this inflation news, the Dollar Tree, the dollar store, they've raised their prices from a dollar to $1.25. That may tell you everything that you need to know about what we're dealing with today in inflation. They have really uh, ruined an American icon, haven't they? Well, coming up after the break, we are going to continue our conversation here on Washington Watch. We And we will be right back with you. More Washington Watch right after the break. Thanks.
6: nuts roasting on an open fire.
0: Welcome back to Washington That's Watch. Nipping. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. So glad that you are with us on this lovely Friday. The atrocities committed against the Uyghur minority in China's Xinjiang region have been getting well-deserved attention this week. Following Monday's announcement by the White House that the United States would have a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics, the House of Representatives followed up with three bipartisan pieces of legislation to hold China accountable for their human rights abuses. And yesterday, the London-based Uyghur Tribunal issued a judgment based on its year-and-a-half long investigations on the atrocities in Xinjiang.
1: On the basis of evidence heard in public, the tribunal is satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the PRC, by the imposition of measures to prevent births intended to destroy a significant part of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, as such, has committed genocide. Joining
0: me now to talk about the momentum that is building up against the Communist Party of China ahead of Beijing's Winter Olympics, which is less than two months away now, is Bob Fu, FRC's Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom and President of the Texas-based human rights organization China Aid. Bob, welcome
6: back to the program. Thank you, Joseph, for having me again.
0: Well, it's good to talk to you about this. Are you encouraged by the steps you see being taken by the United States and others in response to human rights abuses.
6: Indeed, Joseph, I very much encouraged. uh, at least this is uh, the good first uh, positive step toward the right direction. I mean, look, this is a a genocide, uh, a crime against humanity, and it seems uh, the international community has reached uh, more uh, unanimous consensus. Uh, This is uh, not going to be tolerated. Yeah. Do you
0: think there are additional steps the United States should be taking in response?
6: Well, absolutely, there should be additional steps uh, to be taken. I think, uh, you know, uh, the uh, diplomatic boycott uh, is a a good first step. Um, But, I mean, look, uh, when Hitler uh, hosted uh, the Olympics as a a show, And the whole world uh, world, uh, was uh, uh, deceived. Can we learn another lesson? I mean, the Communist Party, are they really interested in the sports activities alone? I mean, they're just trying to put a propaganda show. I would think, uh, you know, the Olympic sponsors, advertisers, Nike, you know, uh, all these players – Uh, This is a time uh, of uh, the moment of of truth. You know, how can we, you know, continue to play as usual uh, when the one to three million uh, fellow humans are in the concentration camps, being tortured, being gun ripped, and being abused, uh, including uh, hundreds of thousands of children. So we rescued, you know, one uh, lady uh, called Guzira this February of 2021. And she experienced more than two years in the concentration camp. Not only herself uh, was sexually abused, but she was one of the witnesses uh, seeing uh, the there is a systematic government uh, Communist Party organized uh, the uh, prostitution, forced prostitution. To those female uh, concentration camp, you know, uh, this Uyghur and Kazakh uh, people.
0: So I think it's a good sign for those of us observing American politics. We've done something that is bipartisan. This is virtually unanimous in the House. Republicans, Democrats are agreeing human rights abuses in China are a problem. We can't just do nothing about it. But my question is, will this have an impact or is it more symbolic?
6: Well, I mean, as I said, this is just a a first uh, positive step in the right direction. I think um, uh, by the end of the day, uh, I'm afraid, uh, you know, the money uh, continue to talk. You know, those uh, uh, like International Committee of Olympics, IOC, I wish... They just listen a little bit, uh, you know, to those survivors of the camps, the persecution, and those witnesses, uh, really hundreds of them, uh, who testified before the uh, Uyghur uh, genocide, you know, uh, tribunal and uh, listen to the cries of the families uh, of uh, prisoners like Pastor John Tho's wife and children who is serving, you know, seven years imprisonment and uh, Pastor Wong Yi is serving nine years imprisonment and those uh, uh, and, uh, others, many. I mean, we just recently even learned a, a church. Uh, The deacon chairman, along with her three co-workers, were all sentenced to criminal sentence. She received 12 years imprisonment for what? For putting an offering and tithing uh, box in the church. That's called financial fraud, 12 years imprisonment. So where are the conscience of those people? And I think uh, the WTA, the, the Women's uh, you know, Tennis Association, made the right decision. They are indeed the encourager. I think uh, all these uh, sports associations should learn from them. Yeah. I mean, they rather just, uh, you know, to uh, kotoing to the Chinese money, which yeah. means $1 billion. You know, WTA withdraw the whole six games Uh, from today's on, from Chinese market Uh, in order to tell the Chinese Communist Party enough is enough and we don't need your money.
0: Bob, you make a really strong case and we're thankful you're here to make this case because you're right. The human rights abuses are serious. Uh, They deserve international attention. They're getting a little bit now, uh, but we think we, we need more and we appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Unfortunately, that's all we have for now. We're going to have to continue this conversation a little bit later. So thank you for joining us, Bob. Thank you, Dustin. And we will continue this conversation because this story must be tracked. The issues are just too important. But stay with us. More Washington Watch on the way right after the break. We'll see you there.
8: Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news?
9: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
6: Beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Welcome
0: back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. So glad that you have joined us today as we get ready for the Christmas season. Now, for the past two weeks, we've been having a stand mug giveaway hearing from our viewers and listeners about what they stand for and why. And here is your stand mug. The final stand mug giveaway winner is Alan from the great state of Texas, who stands for the rights of the unborn. Alan shared with us, Because I was adopted as an infant, I thank the Lord every day that I was not conceived during a time when abortions were popular or I very likely wouldn't be here. Therefore, I stand for the rights of the unborn and would like to see a bigger emphasis on adoption. Thank you for sharing that, Alan, and we hope your new stand mug will encourage you each day to keep standing. Congratulations on being the final winner of our giveaway. Now, if you didn't win a mug and want to get one for yourself or as a Christmas gift for someone else, you'll be glad to know that the stand mugs are available for purchase. Just visit TonyPerkins.com to find out how you can get one. And now for our final segment of the day, Baby Boomer and Gen X parents, this one is for you. Do you have a millennial family member? Are your Christian, Christian faith and values being effectively instilled in your kids. The latest installment in my colleague George Barna's polling suggests that many Christian parents may not be as effective as they had hoped. George, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thanks, Joseph. Always good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. An important topic as always. First off, tell us what your survey found about the religious identity of most millennials.
5: Well, interestingly, we found that about two out of three of them, literally 65%, call themselves Christian. We found, however, that the second largest and really the only other significant block of millennials are those who have no faith tradition at all. They don't relate to Christianity. They don't relate to Eastern faiths. They don't relate to Islam. They don't relate to anything else. And so you have just a handful of people who would say that they associate with Judaism, Mormonism, uh, you know, any of the Eastern faiths and so forth. However, I, I think, Joseph, it's important that we keep in mind that when we say they're calling themselves Christian, we also discovered through the survey that when they use the term Christian, they probably mean something different than you and I might. What we found is that to them, Christian is a generic term. All it means to them is that I'm a good person. It doesn't even mean that they're a religious person. It just means that they try to do what they think is right. And so it's become a generic term, kind of like Kleenex or Xerox. Now it simply means, yeah, I'm good.
0: Uh, That's interesting, and that's actually something I, I did want to ask you about, uh, because of this apparent rejection of the fundamental claims of Christianity, while maintaining uh, the term, the label, why is it that they're not just walking away and saying, "I'm just a good person, but I'm not a Christian"? If I, it's because I don't believe Christian things.
5: Well, they're not. They are in many ways walking away. Uh, when we looked at their behavior, for instance, what we found is that they're probably about a third less likely than older Americans to actually participate in many of the common Christian activities, whether that's attending church, reading the Bible, donating money to a religious center, volunteering to help for religious purposes. All of those numbers are lower, which is kind of interesting because we also found that as a generation, they're much more activists than any group we've seen Uh, at least in the last 40 years. So uh, faith is not as big a deal to them. You know, there there was another number that jumped out in the survey, and that's that 41% of millennials fit in this category of don'ts, people who don't know if God exists, don't care if God exists, or don't believe that God exists. So when you start putting all these things together Basically, what they're doing is they're redefining what religion means. It's not about going to a church. It's not about participating in the life of a church. It's really not even about God or any kind of a relationship with him. They have a whole different understanding of what spirituality means.
0: Well, that seems to be consistent with our our cultural value system, where everything is personal. You know, we we define ourselves in every way. We define our our gender, and we define our own religion, and we can kind of make whatever suits us. But you also say. Uh, I'm going to quote you and then give you ch- ask you to respond to this. You, this. The survey says that millennials do not seem to have a problem with Jesus Christ as much as they have a problem with Christian churches, Christian individuals, and some biblical principles that directly conflict with popular culture and popular cultural perspectives. Now, how does that translate into the real world when they uh, say, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church?
5: Yeah, what we found is that for the most part, they're okay with Jesus. It reminds me of the old song, Jesus is just all right with me. And that's kind of where they're coming from. But they've had a series of not very positive experiences with Christians themselves. What we heard through our our survey is that for the most part, they think that Christian individuals are hypocrites because they say they believe one thing, but they live differently. They would say that, uh, you know, they have problems with the pastors of Christian churches. In fact, when we looked at um, opinions about many different types of cultural influencers, pastors didn't fare all that well. Only 26 percent, just one out of every four millennials, say that they always or almost always feel that they can trust pastors of Christian churches to say or do what's right. That's pretty low, one out of four. So you've got the two primary representatives that they encounter on a day-to-day basis who they really don't trust, they don't believe in, and and that's really had uh, a—it's made a dent in their ideas about what Christianity is. Well, George, I am
0: the son of a pastor, and I would say that I even relate to that in some ways. Um, And and I'm going to ask this question. Is there details about why that distrust exists? Why are millennials, why are young people um, having issues with people that used to be just generally respected in the community?
5: You know, when, when we look at this whole shift, I think what's driving it, there are several things. One of those things is the the different belief structure that they have, where when we look at millennials now, their beliefs are very different. They're not biblical in nature, which makes sense because they don't read the Bible, they don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe that it's relevant. But a second thing beyond their beliefs are their experiences. So the exchanges that they've had with individual Christians or with pastors have not brought them to a positive place of saying, Yeah, Christianity really holds the answers. Christians are the kind of people I want to be with. You know, we look at some of the key issues of the day, whether it has to do with sexual identity or race relations and so forth. They don't believe that Christians have really come to grips in a realistic manner with these issues. But we also know that part of what's driving them away from Christianity is what's being modeled for them by Christians, as we talked about, you know, their their uh, compromise of Christian beliefs and hypocritical lifestyles. And also in terms of relationships, they haven't had good experiences with people who are professing Christians when it comes to being supportive and understanding in those personal relationships. So does
0: that suggest that there is a way to restore the trust in the church and in pastors and spiritual leaders and the institution without abandoning the fundamental tenets of Christianity.
5: Yeah, as we explored this a little bit what we found was that most millennials oppose being overtly evangelized. They oppose being hit over the head with the scriptures and saying, "Here's the truth, take it or leave it," because they're they've chosen to leave it. But what we did find is that when somebody is willing to listen to them, when somebody is willing to build a long-term relationship with them, where it's not about believe what I believe or I'm leaving you, but it's about a more Socratic-oriented exchange. That is where we ask questions because we really care about the person. We're really trying to understand what they believe and why. All of those kinds of things that go into a longer-term unfolding, of a partnership in life, a real desire to support the other person. Now, that doesn't mean that we compromise what we believe. We have to have a clear sense of our narrative, if you will, you know, in postmodern terms, giving people a sense of what Christianity is about, why we believe it, what it looks like in our life, why we think it makes sense, but not trying to force people to believe that giving them the option to make their own choices because they're going to anyway, but simply letting them know, you know what, this is where I'm coming from. If we can be friends, but I can't compromise what I believe. I'm not asking you to compromise what your belief, but I would ask you to consider these other ways of thinking they've worked for me. They're working for a lot of other people. They may well work for you in certain situations. You might give it a try. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, George, we know that churches are imperfect places. But we also know that because we live in a spiritual war, there are people and there are cultural forces that want to malign and misrepresent the church. Do you think millennials' concerns with organized churches are, there, are primarily the result of real problems within the church that are fixable and should be fixed? Or is there a smear campaign against the church by those who hate the church that's being effective?
5: Well, I think it's a combination of jo- both, Joseph. What we found is that most millennials have had experience in and with churches So they're not just talking out of school. I mean, they've been there, they know what they've gone through and whether or not it worked for them. On the other hand, now that most of them have made a decision to detach from a a local church or some kind of a, a, a spiritual body, a community of faith, that decision is being reinforced by what you described as a smear campaign. You know, a lot of negative comments that you would find particularly in social media, but also around the water cooler and other places in the marketplace where people go. It's, It's common to dump on the church. And so what that's doing is that's reinforcing their decision to pull away from organized Christianity. Remember that millennials don't have positive perspectives about institutions overall. And so when they look at local churches, when they look at denominations, when they look at church-related organizations or faith-related organizations, their initial inclination is to doubt their sincerity and to doubt the positions that they're taking. So it's a it's a difficult thing that has to be overcome. It's going to take a long time. But the only way that we're going to get there is by loving them back into God's arms. George, another finding in your
0: study, you say that despite a dramatic decline in belief in a transcendent sovereign God, atheism has not been widely embraced by millennials to fill that vacuum. So they're not uh, taking this affirmative uh, opposition, denial of the belief of God. Does that mean that they're still, are they still looking for something? Are they content or are they, are they are wanting a home?
5: Yeah, great question. And and one of the key things to me in answering that is to recognize that 75% of millennials tell us that they're still seeking a sense of purpose and meaning in life. Obviously, you know, going back to Blaise Pascal's old quote about there's a God-shaped hole in each of us that only he can fill. That's what they're looking for is, is the true God, the God who created them and loves them. They don't buy that ideology right now. But that's ultimately what they're searching for. So, yeah, there, there's an opportunity for them to come back to God. Right now, you know, they're they're basically saying, look, I'm just confused. I feel alone. I feel isolated. I don't know what to make of all this. I'm fearful about life. These are all the kinds of things that God can take care of. They don't realize that. So, yes, there's a possibility they'll come back. They're not, most of them are not definitively saying there is not and cannot be God. Most of them are saying, I don't get it. I don't see it. I haven't experienced it, although they have and they don't know it. So that confusion is what we need to help clarify.
0: You also say in your survey that concern about the afterlife has been replaced by an emphasis on living in the moment and making the most of this present life. Does that mean millennials are more likely than others to be making the world a better place in practical ways?
5: Well, they're trying, but of course, the ways that they're trying don't have any staying power, doesn't have the endurance to, to really affect people's lives in the long haul, because you can only really do that when you're operating through the power of Christ for his purposes and his kingdom. And so what we have here is a group of people who, as they're trying to be good people, based on their own efforts, their own best thinking, they're finding that that's really tough slogging. It's not working well for them. They don't know what else to do, so they just keep trying different approaches. But, you know, they're, they're also at a point where now there's a greater openness to Eastern mysticism where one out of four of them now have bought into ideas about their own higher consciousness that they're trying to evolve into, have bought into the idea that we're all God or that there are multiple gods. So they're still exploring. There's an opportunity here for us to help them clarify that. Uh, They're not going to find it through their own best efforts, uh, just trying to make the world a better place. They've got to do that in partnership with living God.
0: George Barna, greatly appreciate your research and your time sharing it with us. It's a call to action for all of us. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joseph. And for those of us who are parents, and we are trying, we are doing our best, we have to know, how do we make sure that our kids' faith is rooted in the right things? That's what we have for today here on Washington Watch. Friends, we look forward to talking to you next time. We'll see you on Monday.